Am I on? Oh, yeah, I guess I am. Well, good morning. Last time, huh? Everybody has to head back home. Some, you know, have to go up to maybe Virginia. I was just looking at the tags and some to Oregon and others that will have a little longer trip to the other side of Houston. And uh, <laughs> the biggest place in the world, it seems like. <laughs> well, I was trying to think how to do this this morning because uh, there's a lot that can be covered. <clears throat> so what I'm going to do is uh, move into the PowerPoint, and then I'm going to go to a paper that I did one time and show you some of the stuff on that rather than retyping it in. And I, I was told that maybe some toward the back can't see, uh, you know, the, the uh, board as well as maybe some of the ones up closer. And so we'll try to see if we can't make the, the print a little bigger for you to work with. Uh, we're going to look at some examples of proper biblical interpretation. Now, obviously, this is from my perspective. And obviously, everything I say is correct. <laughs> but... Uh, just in case I miss it, you're welcome to change, you know, question me on it. Uh, <clears throat> but over a period of time, you know, you begin to look at passages that people have talked about and examining them to see if they measure up to certain standards, particularly as you develop a new, new way of looking at hermeneutics. And that has helped me, I think, in some of the ideas that I presented yesterday and that uh, <clears throat> I've had a chance to think about them in a different way. So we're going to take off, first of all, this morning on Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in reference, are those the same or different coming, or coming to Christ? And I bring you back to this. You've seen this a couple times now, but the reason I do this is because I want to focus you again on the fact that things that look similar and some are viewed sometimes as being the same when they're not. Uh, it's not the similarity, but the dissimilarity that becomes the question. The whole world is similar, my goodness sakes. You can, uh, you can get even to specifics, like you say, you know, well, uh, uh, a human being and a, and a monkey are, are, are basically the same, right? Because they have arms and legs and feet and, and toes and, 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 you know, and, and mouth and eyes. And there are a lot of similarities, but it's those real specific dissimilarities that are important, see? And lots of things are that way. And that's true in the, in the biblical passages. That's why a person will read one way uh, in one portion of Scripture and they go to another portion of Scripture that has some of the same words. And because of that, they think they're discussing the same question. And that happens all the time. And that's particularly true about this passage that we're going to look at right now. Now, <clears throat> this particular uh, one that I have right here, can you see that in the back, by the way? Is that good? Um, this is not mine. This is presented by someone else seeking to demonstrate that Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, you know, 4, 24 and 25 and 4 and 5 Thessalonians are in fact talking about the same event. Now, this is not mine, just to understand that. But there are some points that make me think that. If I were reading this just with, you know, not very critical reading, just superficial reading, uh, I would say, well, it makes sense to me. Christ returns both passages, Right? He does return in some sense, and it's from heaven. Hmm, how unusual. It's not from the earth. And with a shout and accompanied by angels, and you have a trumpet of God, and believers are gathered, and it's in the clouds, and 
We don't know the time. He'll come as a thief. Unbelievers are unaware of impending judgment. Judgment comes uh, uh, a travail upon expectant women. Believers not decided. Believers to watch. Warning against drunkenness. Open and shut case. Really. On the surface, it would look that way. The question is, if you look deeper, is it that way? Now, I didn't take the time because I haven't got the time. They, they cut me down to an hour and a half. But <laughs> the fact is, if we had the time like it were in a class, we would really take the time to go through the passages carefully together and look at them and talk about them, which we don't have time to do. <clears throat> But if you were to look at those passages where it says, you know, there's, you know, Christ comes. Okay, but comes in what way? It's not just that he comes, that he comes in what way? And if you have an angel, well, the angels are at both places. No, it's not really accurate. It's a, it's a oversimplification because in one you do have angels, the other you have the blast of an archangel. There's not a discussion of angels. Now, they may be there, but it doesn't say they are. You know, and so you start looking at particulars that are a little distinctions from the other. Is it really an open and shut case? Well, one man, you're familiar with J. Sidlow Baxter, right? Some of you guys have read him. Yet the remarkable feature which must surely impress all those, but those who simply will not, oh, that should say C, I typed that wrong, which must surely impress all those, all but those who will not see, that's me, is the singular correspondence between the phraseology here Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians. Then what kind of Bible interpretation is it which can take exactly the same phrases and symbols in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 16 and say that they teach a secret coming? Nothing can disguise to an honest eye the parallel between these two passages. Well, there I am. I'm indicted. And I will be confessing right afterwards. <clears throat> now, I don't think it's quite that way because I began to look very carefully, detailed, looking at, at each passage. Remember I said the problem we have that I had in my, in my earlier life? Reading passages, they become familiar. You just sort of scoot right over them. You don't pay attention to particular words. And you just assume they're discussing what you say they are. But when you start taking it apart and looking very carefully and analyzing each pass, each word, each phrase, and so forth, you find out that they're not the same. So I think what we encounter is something else. Christ rescues his church in one sense, and Christ reveals his messiahship in another sense. There are two aspects to what some people call the coming of Christ. Uh, one might even call the second coming. The other is called, we oftentimes call the rapture. And, of course, that's just something from the Greek term harpazosamatha. Well, I know you know that. But it's in First Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, we will be caught up. And the word raptura in Latin comes over to our word rapture. That's how we get it. But the point of it is there, there's a difference between Christ coming for his people and Christ coming with his people. And so we're going to look at that a little bit. Now, uh, I'm going to show you one more little point, and then I want to read from a, pa a paper just a moment, and then we'll move on. Uh, I've got several issues I'm dealing with here this morning, not just this question, so I don't want to take all morning with this. By the way, I need to have a, a, a marker. Figure out exactly what time I'm supposed to stop, and I'll be sure and do it. The uh, Distinguishing the revelation of Christ from the rescue by Christ. That's how I distinguish it. Revelation of Christ, the unveiling of Christ, 
and the rescue by Christ? I think they're two different questions. And that's why I have here, for example, the coming of Christ, the king. You have the rescue. You have the retribution. You have the revelation. It preaches. Three R's. Now, in the first one, the rescue, the kingdom camped outside the enemy camp. That happened in a lot of places. The king directs the campaign against those who are enemies. And then the revelation, the king enters the city to take charge as a victor. That's a normal procedure in a war of a sort. And so um, you may have some similarities between what Christ does even. I think we really do have a rescue who, who saves us from the wrath that is to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. What is that but a rescue? I mean, if somebody takes you out of wrath, keeps you from having to endure it, it's okay. It's a rescue. Whereas a revelation is him telling about himself and unveiling himself to people. The rapture, there's no unveiling. He's here, he's gone 100, you know, what is it, a thousandth of a second is the twinkling of an eye. It takes place pretty fast. Not a lot of people, you know, you're going to say, I wonder if we're going to be, and the next thing you know, you're looking down. You know, it's that fast. You don't get a chance to finish your sentence. There's no getting things in order. <laughs> you won't have time to put your hands in your pockets. Uh, and I often wonder if we have pockets by that time. But anyway, that's altogether a different question. But the, the issue of rescue and revelation, I think, are important distinctions. So when I look at the passage, and I'm going to go into more detail than this in just a moment, there are traits of the revelation and there are traits, remember the words traits, the Hersheyan terms, those components that make up a type. The different, the, can you see that the idea of a, a post-tribulational coming of Christ in glory to, to set up his kingdom is a different type meaning than the pre-tribulational coming of Christ to receive his people? Can you see that those are different types under my discussions yesterday? They have similarities, but they have their own unique circle that fits around them, right? They don't bump into each other. They have, okay. In the same way, we find their traits, that is, those components that make up a type. Now, here, here are the components. The coming of Christ in both, just like that tree and the bush. The coming in the clouds in both. By the way, it should not surprise you that God comes in the clouds. Every time in the Old Testament... I mean, again and again and again in the Psalms particularly, you have God coming in the clouds. He always comes with his entourage, so to speak. Uh, it's not as though he just shows up. He comes with an entourage. He comes in the clouds. And so that's a common phenomenon. You shouldn't expect something different. Uh, in the Revelation, you have angels present, whereas in the First Thessalonians rescue, you have an archangel present. Now, whether he brought his group with him, I don't know. It doesn't say you have gathering of the elect by angels from the diaspora in the Revelation. Whereas you have the gathering together of the church in the air with Christ in the rescue. See, the fact, it's a different kind of scenario when you read the passages carefully. Uh, it doesn't say these angels grab people and take them to Jesus. It says they're gathering them together for a reason. But it doesn't say the reason is to go to be with Christ. You have to read that into the passage, the eyes you know, that people do. Uh, so you, the, basic, the basis of the revelation is the messianic mission of power and glory. That's why you have these statements. Remember Mark chapter 14, is it, when uh, the high priest said to Jesus, he said, tell us plainly, 
Are you the Messiah? And I think it said the Son of God. And then he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming in power and great glory, which is really an indictment statement. He's judging Jesus and saying, okay, tell me who you are and all this kind of stuff. I'm in charge here. I want an answer. And Jesus says, okay, I've got an answer, yes, and I'm going to come to judge you. <laughs> Quite an indictment. Uh, so power and glory, that is not the discussion of Christ coming to rescue the church, which is based on the death and resurrection, obviously, of Christ. Uh, watchfulness is seen in the revelation. Urgency is seen in the teaching of the rapture. Urgency, not watchfulness. Judgment in the Revelation, rescue by Christ, and the other, an apocalyptic son of man in Revelation, and Savior in rescue. You have different dynamics in the passages. Now, what I'm going to hopefully do here is stop right there, if I do this right, technology, you know, and go to this. Let's take a look at this a second. I didn't see any reason to go through and, and try to uh, improve on perfection here. <clears throat> oh, it's not here, though. Hmm. There's perfection. Okay. Now. <laughs> I tell you. I'm going to pull this down for Robbie since he needs eye vision. I, okay. He needs some help. Okay. Now, let's see. Go up to here 200%. Uh, how about if I take that up a little bit more? Is that? I can't see that. Is that right here? How's that? Is that better? Robbie, can you read that? Okay. Here we go. All right. Thank you so much. The problem with that with that much, I'm not, not getting quite everything on the page. Where? Well, where? Oh, right here. That's what you're talking about. Okay, I'm sorry. One seven five. Return. Is that better? All right. Now that we solve that problem, one of the many battlefields often frequented by eschatological combatants is the question as to whether the coming of our Lord, spoken of in the Olivet Discourse, most fully given in Matthew twenty-four, also provided in Mark thirteen and seven, Luke seventeen, is the same coming. See, so post. Tribulation consider the two passages referring to the coming of Christ at the end of a seven-year period of pre-tribulations with the exception of Matthew 24, 36 through 44. Generally believe that the Matthean passage gives information on the current age through the 70th week. Now, the Olivet Discourse and 1 Thessalonians 4 passages have many terms and events that appear to refer to the same phenomena and thus serve as the basis for identifying these two passages. Next paragraph. The purpose of this paper, as I have it here in front of me, if I can get over here, how do I do this? This is very awkward. You see my little thing? Oh. There it 
Oh, okay, great. Now I'm going to list that up. Okay, we good? Purpose of this paper, matter of fact, I should read this, is to subject the identification of the perspective to Cummings to discern whether they in fact refer the two, to, to, to the coming of Christ in judgment or rather two aspects. Now, similarities, and this is what I want to get to. What are the similarities of these passages, see? Four types of similarities. Both passages have a coming. Both have Christ coming in the clouds. Both have angels in some respect. Both have a gathering in some respect. Now, that doesn't mean they're the same, but in some respect. So, we have, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age is the question. Now, I want to stop you right there because I'm going to show you something in just a moment that occurs in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. When the disciples asked Jesus about his coming in Acts and the end of the age, right? He asked him about when will these things be we've been talking about, the destruction, and your coming and the end of the age. And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which God has put in his own purpose. But then he gave them their mission, right? The same terminology is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul says, I don't need to teach you about the times and the epochs. I found that fascinating. The exact same statement in Jesus' statement to the apostles and Paul's statement to the Thessalonians that the times and the epochs, I don't need to talk to you about, Jesus says, we're not going to discuss that question. Paul, but Paul says it. I don't need to talk about it because you know certain things. And where did he get it from? See? So we see that occurring. And then we have this statement about the your coming and the end of the age, which also looks like Luke's statements, right? I think Paul and Luke stuck around each other some. And um, it may be that, that what we get here relates to that. For many will come... In my name, saying I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall we be the coming of the Son of Man. So we have these comings of the of the text. Let's see how do I do this? Uh, Doesn't have a thing to push to go next. Okay, technology's in my way. Jesus didn't have to deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even find it. I'm trying to go to the next page. Oh, there it is. There it is. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. But as in the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is in Matthew. The Son of Man coming in an hour you don't expect. Now, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So there are similarities. See, the expressions found in the trial of Jesus, I've given that already. Both passages have Christ coming with the clouds. And let's look at what that means. Come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we are alive and remain. We cut up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So you do have clouds. Both passages have angels. And here's the example. The voice of the archangel and with the angels with the great sound of a trumpet. So theoretically one could argue that. Both passages have a gathering of God's people, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, 
And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. There, yeah, I suppose you could argue there's some kind of gathering at that point. But then what makes up meaning becomes the question. Remember the issues of meaning and significance? A meaning is a reality expressed by various constituent parts which may or may not be all expressed in a given statement but are never disparate from the meaning in its parts. What do I mean by disparate, folks? Contrary or contradictory, right? All right. They can be different. That is, they can be expressed differently, but they can't be contradictory. Okay? Okay, how, how do we get to the next page? I'm having trouble with this. Well, I'm trying. Oh, there I am. Okay. I hate this. should have put these in PowerPoint. But, but I, was try, I was trying to meet up Robbie's concerns yesterday because I couldn't figure out how to get my PowerPoint without putting one sentence on a page. Okay. By this I mean that when we say that an author means a certain thing in a text, we understand the meaning may have more than one idea included within it, but never contradictory, see, to the meaning. More than seeking to determine if the meaning in one passage of Scripture like Matthew 24 is the same as the meaning in another passage like 1 Thessalonians 4, it's the dissimilarity. So we've talked about that. Now, I've talked about type. A type is determined by those defined elements. Remember the traits that make a thing, our concept, what it is and not something else. For example, looking at a physical object to determine its type, we must look at all those elements that go into making it what it is, but we must also look at what makes it, makes it not something else. What makes something not something else? Now, let's go down here then in reference to the the dissimilarity between the coming of Christ. Matthew 24 begins with the disciples of Christ going with him through the temple area, responding to his comments on the temple's destruction. That's the context. Temple's destruction. But then also something else. What? And you're coming and the end of the age. Right? Three components there. Right? The coming is different. The coming may precipitate the end of the age, but it's not the same thing as the end of the age. The temple destruction precedes the other two. That's why in Luke's gospel, people have trouble with that sometimes. Luke's gospel does not discuss the question of what we think of as a coming and end of the age. It discusses the destruction of Jerusalem, which is appropriate because you have three things going on in their question. So in Luke, he discusses the destruction of Jerusalem. Here, he said he sort of goes into all three in Matthew 24. So, um, said this whole issue is very natural. Christ's answer to clarify his coming in the heavens and judgment after the temple's destruction and at the end of the age, including the tribulation period, deals in detail with these questions. On the other hand, Paul the apostle is responding to the matter of the death of saints. You notice you have different contexts. What precipitated Jesus' words in Matthew 24? It's the question. We've looked at these wonderful buildings and Jesus said, Hey, enjoy them now. They're not for long. There's a destruction coming, judgment. And then he says there's going to be a coming and there's going to be the end of the age. Paul's whole context is different. It's precipitated by people saying, Hey, what's going on? People are dying and Jesus hasn't come. And so the answers become different answers. So you don't get the same answer to a different question. You get different answers to different questions. 
So, and in view of an eager anticipation of an imminent coming of Christ for his church, the natural discussion centers in the certainty of a future resurrection founded in the redemption acts of the Savior. By the way, I say that because you find that talked about in First Thessalonians as it goes through. A savior, you never have a Messiah argument there or kingship argument. It's all about the Savior, unlike Matthew. Founded in the redemptive action, which takes on an eschatological and apocalyptic dimension, salvation as a future historical event. Now, now it went too far. Come on. I'm beginning to hate this. Okay. Uh-huh. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we observe that the apostle has a sense of urgency to explain the matter. Right? Because he's trying, to, he's trying to soothe the concerns of the believers. It's an urgent issue for him. The experience of the church within its own community is, in fact, not cataclysmic events occurring in the world or in nature, which is, in fact, what is true in Matthew's gospel. It's personal not worldwide concerns. In Matthew 24, it's about the world and persecution, tribulation, and so forth. That is not the concern of these Thessalonians. They're concerned about friends of theirs dying. The importance of the death and resurrection and the salvific concepts in 1 Thessalonians 4 is different from the Olivet Discourse. So you have different questions, different answers, different circumstances. You do not, just because you have some similarities, does not mean you're talking about the same thing. That's very important to recognize. The essence of the kerygma, that is the preaching of the church, and resurrection in 1 Thessalonians and serves as a foundation for the teaching of Christ's comings with those who had died. See, the salvation offered is not merely deliverance from the physical wrath of God, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, but escape from the wrath relates to the soteriological dimensions of Jesus in his death and resurrection. Similar is found in 1 Corinthians, where, for example, the resurrection is discussed in chapter 15. So, in the Olivet Discourse, the coming does not impinge on the kerygma, but on the Messiah's nature and mission of judgment. So, in Matthew 24, you're discussing not the kerygma, the gospel of Christ and the salvation, but you're discussing the coming of Christ in judgment. Totally different context totally different traits, different ideas. And the Olivet Discourse coming does not impinge on this. See, the closest one gets is the statement of the gospel of the kingdom being preached in the world, but this is stated in general terms rather than the gospel as described by Paul. See, the good news gospel doesn't, just because you see the same word good news doesn't mean you're talking about the same good news. For example, if the good news is individual salvation, which is what First Thessalonians is concerned about, that's one issue. That's like Paul's teaching in Romans, you know, chapter 1 and others. The good news of the kingdom is the fact that God's about to bring this thing to a close. That's not the same thing as individual salvation. So you're moving from individual experience, individual death, soothing individual concerns, and all these things relating to Christ and His death and resurrection in First Thessalonians from the Apostle Paul 
When you get into Matthew, you have cataclysmic events, all sorts of major things happening through the world. It's not focused on individual questions. Does that make sense? And so when you get to Matthew, then you have these broad concerns of judgment and issue of Christ coming in to conquer and all these broader questions. The gathering together and catching up. The terminology of the removal of the church from the earth is catching up and being gathered together. On the other hand, Matthew speaks about being taken away in judgment. By the way, I hope you don't take that passage when two are at the millstone and one is taken, the other is left, as being a statement of the rapture. I don't know what this guy in this dissertation does. But that clearly does not follow the flow of the argument. The flow of the argument is taken away in judgment and one is left, right? It's, it's, it's not in the fact that uh, you get a rapture in the passage. Um, it should be granted the terminology closer resembles words used, so forth, but the association is not exact. The gathering in 1 Thessalonians is gathered together with Christ, whereas the mention for in Matthew 24 speaks only being gathered together by angels and without reference to where the gathering occurs. And the use of Paralambano, uh, you have that statement in, in John 14 that is coming for his disciples. So that seems to be the, the context of what we're talking about here. The, um, let's see what else here. <laughs> I don't want to get into Gundry's discussion. The Son of Man here obviously is a theme found in reference to the Olivet Discourse. That is not the presentation of Christ in the First Thessalonians. It doesn't discuss that theme. Because Son of Man theme is a Danielic theme, right? Of judgment, coming as a, as a conqueror, someone who's going to be the ruler of the nations and all these things. That is not a discussion in First Thessalonians, which is someone who is very close and, 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 and who sort of brings you into a more safe situation. It's just contrasted differently than that. Um, I think that's probably about all I want to do here. I just want to show you some of these components. I think that's all I'm going to do because I'm getting really tired of this. Okay. Save. No. <laughs> Let me get back to my PowerPoint. I like PowerPoint. All right. Okay, that's an experiment. Okay, now, if we go back to PowerPoint here, uh, I just want, I didn't want to, you know, try to run you through all the, you know, have you open your Bible and go through those passages with me. I thought it would be better to do it that way. So you have these basic components. Traits, though, that have similarities but not sameness. All right? I hope that's clear to you. Now, this seems to be the progression of revelation that we see in the New Testament. The advent of Christ, the revelation of Christ, and in between you obviously have the coming of Christ. But you have AD 70, destruction of Jerusalem, coming of Christ for the church, Thessalonians, destruction of the temple like Daniel 9, Matthew 24, day of the Lord, Daniel 7, revelation of Christ, millennial reign. That seems to be the progression, right, that you see in the New Testament, okay? Now, this is my presentation. This is not the other guy's. Because what I think you look at when you go to the question of differences and similarities is the fact that, yes, there are similarities, but the similarities are not exactly plain. If I say these passages must be saying the same thing because they both talk about Christ's coming, 
That's too general because the question is coming in in what respect. See, uh, that's like the, the bush and the, and the tree again. You can say, well, both of these are plants. True. Well, that settles that. They must be the same. See, it's that kind of argument. Because you're going to say, yes, in a broader scheme of discussion, they do share this very broad similarity, right? But then you say, well, what else about them? Well, okay, oh, they must not be the same because they have differences. And strategic differences, right? And that's also true what I've said in reference to Christ. Yes, they both discuss His coming. But in fact, the coming is of a unique character. And that character is defined by the the basis of, of the answer. The answer comes out of the question. What is the question that he answers? If you don't get to that, you're not dealing with contextual interpretation. You've got a question that needs an answer. What is the answer? The answer then is framed in one respect. And you look for those components in which it's framed. The other, it becomes plain then that they are not the same event when you do this. Look at these particulars. Christ will come in the air, rapture. Christ will come to the earth. Now I grant that post-tribulationists deal with this by saying, yes, Christ comes in the air, we're caught up together with Him in the air, and we immediately come back down to the earth. What a waste of energy. Uh, I mean, you, can you realize how that ride is going to be, whoo, and the next thing you know, whoo, we're, we're yo-yos. So the fact, the fact is that uh, we have Christ coming to the earth for a purpose. We have Him taking the church into the air for a purpose. And, of course, the purpose between the two is what? We go into the air because He, he rescues us from the wrath that is to come, and then He brings the wrath. The tribulation period is not persecution per se. There is persecution done by humans at that point. But the tribulation period is, is, is judgment of God. And he says, that wrath, you escape. Now some people say, well, that's not, I mean, people are being persecuted all the time. Yeah, but they're not being tribulated all the time. Is that a word? So uh, the fact is, when you look at the cataclysmic events that you see in the Revelation, and even anticipated in the Matthew 24, these are earth-shaking, literally, that's a literal interpretation, earth-shaking events. I mean, we have a, my goodness, a, a, a hurricane off the coast of, of uh, the Gulf of Mexico or the East Coast, and it, it, it takes months or years to recover from that, just that one. Or you have a volcano go off someplace, and it devastates something in a particular area. And by the way, one volcano erupting produces enough carbon to run an industrial revolution for 100 years. You've got to watch that, that carbon footprint. So the fact is, these are devastating. But what if you had them going on constantly everywhere? All the volcanoes go off. Hurricanes running left and right. Tornadoes. You know, on and on and on. Pestilences. You can imagine why there would be because everything breaks down. I actually think there may be horsemen in the final battles because when you take away all the technology from all these devastations, there won't be anything to run anything. You're going to have to find some means to move around again. It won't be by tanks because you won't be able to get the oil. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know. I look at those things. I think, well, that may not actually be looking at symbolically. <laughs> that may be real if you had all these cataclysmic events. That is so different from the issue of soothing people's hearts that God is going to bring 
you back to him, you know, and, and those that are dead in the resurrection. Well, a coming for the saints, a coming with the saints. Saints are caught up. Saints will remain on the earth <laughs> in, the, in the second coming. Uh, produces comfort and hope. Produces fear and judgment. There's a mystery in the rapture. Truth revealed only in the New Testament age and more particularly in the apostolic period. Central in Old Testament prophecy and clarified. The basis of church saints glorified and brought to heaven for seven years. And by heaven, I, do, I mean, I don't know where it is that the marriage up of the Lamb is going to take place. But bodies of tribulation saints left in mortal state to continue to live. In other words, our bodies aren't changed at this point. You have a movement in the millennial period. Uh, the rapture is imminent. There are no signs needed for the rapture. I, I know there may be a debate on that question here. I don't know. But I don't think they are. The revelation is not imminent, but preceded by spectacular signs. There will not be any wondering what's going on. The primary purpose is deliverance. The primary purpose is judgment. Rapture somewhat is invisible, particularly if you think, you know, and it's not invisible in one respect, because, I mean, you're there and all of a sudden you're somewhere else. I think people will notice, you know, I'm up speaking somewhere and all of a sudden I'm gone and they're standing there by themselves. Not here for sure, but <laughs> visible and invisible. Fulfills a promise to the church. Fulfills a promise of covenants to Israel. Evil begins to increase. Evil suppressed. Church removed. Satan removed. Christ shown as the head of the church. Christ vindicated as Messiah. Judgment seat for believers. Judgment of the Israel and the Gentiles, or that is the nations. The Lord is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. Nature subsequently ruined. Nature subsequently restored. The fact is, I think that the distinctions are clear between the passages. And I marvel with J. Sidlow Baxter who says, my goodness, how can anybody not see that these are talking about the same thing? I respond, I can't imagine how someone would think they're the same thing. Okay? So that's how I would deal with that question. Uh, there are many others. But let's keep moving. Something that has nothing to do with the second coming. What is the pneumaticone? I decided to put this in because Robbie was not here yesterday uh, because he was distracted, I, we talked about that. I thought I'd give it up here for you. This is for you, Robbie. Uh, can you read it? Okay. What is a pneumaticone? You've heard of pneumonia? Well, that's what this is. It's from pneumonia, you know, or pneuma, pneuma, uh, pneumaticone. Uh, based on a question in a letter from, Christ, from Corinthians. You know, you have two breakdowns in 1 Corinthians. You have the first six chapters dealing with a report that came from somebody who came to Paul and said, we got these problems at the church. The second portion of the book deals with Paul answering a letter. It's like he had their letter in front of him, and he responded point by point to their comments, their terminology, their questions. It's important to recognize this is how they are versing it. That's why Paul does headings. It's fascinating to study this, by the way. If you'll take the time to do it, you'll find it interesting because a lot of people wrongly interpret the book of 1 Corinthians because they don't realize that the clause that first occurs after the peride is not Paul's terminology. It's theirs to which he responds. 
it's good for a man not to touch a woman is not Paul's statement. It is their statement to which he responds with the rest of the state, with the rest of his discussion. And like here, peride, now concerning the pneumaticon that you wrote about. And then Paul answers the pneumaticon problem. You with me? Now, I do realize King James says spiritual gifts. They puts gifts in italics. It would have been better just say now concerning spirituals, and that would have left it open, right, for us to deal with. But the pneumaticon here is, in fact, spiritual, either human, spiritual persons or spiritual things, one of the two. And actually, you have a play between the two in the next three chapters because there are spiritual things and spiritual people. Both are being talked about. So it's sort of like a double entendre of a sort. Both things are true. Now, concerning what? About these spirituals. They want to know what Paul has to say about it. And that's what he goes into. Notice how he responds. I put both the pig Latin at the bottom and the English at the top. Now concerning spiritual gifts, which I don't think it is. Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, do you think the Corinthians at Corinth and this very depraved and mystery-ridden and, and pagan uh, religious and, and immoral a community, when they became Christians, they just immediately all those things went away. Their minds were just simply erased and they moved right into the church to be taught. He had problems with these people because they couldn't get rid of their past. That happens today, by the way, trying to get rid of the past and be somewhat re-educated in the things of the Christ. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray, that's a forceful action, to the Idols that can't talk. Notice the talk terminology. Talk. However you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking. Notice that talk is involved again. Speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now that's Paul's introduction to the question. And then he takes a considerable amount of time in 12 and 13 and 14 dealing with this problem. It's really... You have a beginning and an ending to this discussion. The ending is 1437. The beginning is 12.1. And everything in between clarifies issues, but it always has in the back of it answering this problem. Okay? The problem will be resolved by the end of 14 that he starts here. Then he moves on, after he does this, into this discussion of the, the grace gifts, the charisma tone gift of grace. And he says that to one is given by the Spirit this, another is given by the Spirit this, all for the common good, right? The purpose of the grace gifts is not individual benefit. The purpose of the grace gifts is what? Yeah, edification of the church, right? Not for you, for the church. Okay, those are the grace gifts. We're not, and he's contrasting this with the pneumaticon, which are not for the common good. And that's not how they're functioning in the Corinthian church. That's why he has to calm them down. Let's keep moving. In 14.1 he says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spirituals. Now that can either be understood as an indicative mood or an imperative in Greek. Uh, command is imperative, indicative is that which actually occurs, just declarative, right? So this is regularly translated... Pursue love, yet you are earnestly desiring spirituals. That's an indicative. But uh, 
it could also be considered an imperative. Yet, he, you should desire versus you are desiring, right? Indicative is you are desiring. Imperative is you should desire, right? A command. Well, usually people translate that as uh, a command. You should do this thing. You should desire these spirituals. I would say Paul is probably here in the context in which he begins to move his argument is not saying they should desire them, but that they are desiring them. You with me? The Greek word is identical. And I'll run it uh, down. Well, I can't do it here. I can do it here. The Greek word here, zelute, ta penumatika, uh, this word right here is the spirituals, okay? This is desire. That particular form can be you are desiring or desire. One of the two. This word, generally speaking, is a negative use of the term zelao. Didn't, doesn't tend to be a a desire like thelo, which is to will or desire, but a more negative idea, okay? The problem with these people that they, under 1 Corinthians 13, should be desiring what? Love, pursuing it. What are they pursuing? Love? They're probably pursuing their pneumatica, their spirituals. Now, that's a negative of what they're doing. They rather should do what? Prophesy. See, they should prophesy and not be desiring the spirituals. You just translate that as an indicative instead of an imperative. For one, and why do I say that so? Why is my interpretation obviously the correct one? I'm being facetious with you. I, but anyway, but I am right. Now, uh, it says for one. See the word for? It's a causal idea. He's explaining why he said what he said. He said, you ought to pursue love, but you're desiring spirituals, but you ought to prophesy because. Why is that so? Because. Because the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Isn't that one of the functions of the charismata? Right? The grace gifts are given for the benefit of all. So if you prophesy, what are you doing? You're exercising a grace gift. If you pursue pneumatica, what are you pursuing? Not a grace gift. You're pursuing personal edification, which is contrary to the grace gifts. So that's, the pneumatica is not one of the grace gifts. Instead, it is the way that the Greek pagans religiously worshipped prior to Paul coming. And I know this is true. I, have, I can't do it here. But I've read the materials and the Greek of, of various uh, uh, mystery religion sources and, and of, of the period of time. In, in Corinth, you had two major views. One is Dionysianism, which was a mystery largely predominated by women, and their activities are well known. Man, they get together and they had a bash. I mean, they, were, they said they were possessed by the deity. They ran around. Nobody could judge them on what they're doing. They're speaking in tongues. They're dancing. They're having a great time. That's Dionysianism, the god of wine, by the way, Bacchus in Latin. And then you have the god Apollo. The god Apollo was the god of revelation and prophecy and wisdom. That's Apollo. Major shrine at Corinth. Major god worship there. Down the way about 40 miles, I think it's about 40 miles, he has a thing called the, or, the, the, uh, the site of Delphi where he had an oracle who worked for him. I'm speaking 
you know, I, I realize there's no God Apollo, but the way they viewed it, the oracle is there at Delphi who gives interpretations, right, and prophetic understanding. And what happens, she would speak in tongues. This is really the way it happened. She would speak in tongues, and then the prophet on the outside of the place where you have the hole in the wall, he would give an interpretation of that tongues to the people who inquired regarding information. That's how it worked every day. You think this was not known to the apostle? Okay. So the phenomenon you see that the Corinthians are involved in is reproducing what they did in their pagan culture. And yet Paul's trying to get the grace gifts operating in the church instead of the pneumatica operating in the church. You, you know what I'm saying? Okay. So uh, when you get here, he says, if you prophesy, you benefit people. That's a charismata. On the other hand, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. That is not a positive. I know some people are charismatic and Pentecostal say, well, yeah, I mean, I get into my closet and pray for hours on end and don't know a thing I'm talking about, but God uses that and I pray to the Spirit or something. I pray to God through the tongues. Remember that? I've dealt with the passage in Romans 8 on that. It's actually, the, he, 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 groans, he, before, he groans before the Father without any words, so the tongues are not there, right? That's what Paul teaches in Romans. But these people, they pray and pray and pray because it's, I've done this for hours. It's amazing how you can pray for hours in tongues. Uh, because you don't have to think about what you're doing. You, just put, you put things together, you just go on and on, and you get into a trance, as it were. And, and actually, I was with a friend one time in, in Newark, Delaware, and we had a revival in my first year of college. And we were with all these young people, and we started praying, and we started praying in tongues. And I remember thinking, I want to outlast him. <laughs> I am dead serious, and I would never have told anybody that. Until now, this is my true confession. I'm thinking after we're praying more than an hour in tongues, because you can't keep that up in, in, in English very long. You just sort of think, what am I going to say next? In tongues, you don't have to worry. It just goes on. And so I'm sitting there, and he's still praying, and I'm praying, if you want to call it that. And I'm thinking, i gotta, I got to outlast him, because I want to be the last one. See, that's more spiritual, Right? It's amazing to think about that. But I, I was a young man, 18, 19, 18 years old at the time, trying to do that. But the point of it is, you have this contrast here. See, your earnings is desiring what? Your earnings is desiring these pneumatica. What you should have is love based on chapter 13, how love operates in a different way in reference to the gifts, right? Love operates the charismata properly. Because why? It's for others' benefit. What you're doing edifies yourself individually, which is not a positive. And then he says, why? Because, see, that here you have your logic going back and forth. See, because one who speaks in tongues is individually related. One who prophesies benefits a church. One who speaks in tongues edifies himself. One who prophesies as a church. He just restated the same thing in, in, uh, in different ways. Now, 12.1. So also you... you Uh-oh. That should be 12.1. Uh, I don't know where that is. Anyway, so also you, since you're zealous of spirits, and this is not the Greek word pneumaticon, even though the translator tra translates it that way. 14.12. 14.12, thank you. I knew it was 12. Thank you. <laughs> should be 14.12, not 12.1. Okay, 
So also you, since you are zealous of spirits, seek to abound for the edification of the church. That's a different statement. These people were into spiritual stuff. It just wasn't godly stuff. <laughs> and that was the religion. Uh, I think it was talked about the movie here yesterday, the day before. In the first century of the Christian era, they had moved past the philosophical ideas that was found in the fourth or fifth and fourth centuries of the of the great philosophers. They had moved into mysticism and and uh, witchcraft and sorcery and all those existential kind of things was rampant in the in the ancient world. Okay, so they were desirous of things that relate to the spirit, right? And so. In 1437, which is the end of Paul's discussion, he says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet, now if you read 14, you'll have this back and forth. Speak in tongues, prophesy. Speak in tongues, prophesy. Speak in tongues, prophesy. Keeps contrasting that all the way through the chapter. And then he comes to the end and ends it with the same word that he began with. You see that? It's a beginning and an ending to the story. Deliberately so. You wrote about the pneumaticone, I've talked about it. Talked about what it is, talked about what you ought to do instead of it, and now we're at the end. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or a pneumaticos, doesn't say tongue speaker, but all the way through the chapter, tongue speaker, prophet, tongue speaker, prophet. Comes to the end, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or a t- spiritual, a tongue speaker as it were, a spiritual one, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Why does he say something like that? He says, because I have tried to correct your problems. And you're resistant to what I'm saying because you're into your own pagan religions, Jews, still bringing them into the church. He says, and I've tried to show you what's right and wrong, and I've given you illustrations and contrast. So if you think you're a tongue speaker here, or a prophet, either one, recognize that I'm giving my statements as the Apostle Paul a command of Christ. Right? And that's what you have. And if you don't accept it, you're not accepted. In other words, he says, you are under judgment. You know, I think that's what's going on here. And I think that can be demonstrated. I've just hit it a lot, a little of it. You may have questions on that later. Now I'm going to solve this problem. Um, I don't know what you think about this. Uh, It's hard. It really is hard because there's a lot of different ways people have looked at it, as we'll look at. Uh, But let's do the passages. Um, You have different ways that what is perfect. But before we get to what is perfect, I want to talk about what precedes it. Because Paul in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians uh, discusses the idea of uh, let me back up. This might be helpful. If you look at chapter 12, you'll find a number of gifts that are mentioned that are charismatics, right? And I mean that not in our current sense, but, but gifts that are charismata, grace gifts. It's like forming a sideways triangle, okay? 
So you have nine gifts mentioned. And all of a sudden you're down here in chapter 13 to 3. Because see, the charismatics or the the charismatic gifts are not a problem. He gives instructions and explains where they came from and why why they work the way they do. But the gifts of grace are going to properly function with love because they're for the benefit of others. So that's not the problem. That's why in 12 he develops that idea, but then he moves away from all of them and goes to three. All relevatory gifts. Everyone, relevatory gifts. Okay? Gift of healing is not a relevatory gift. See? Prophecy is. Right? Knowledge is. And tongues is. So that when you when you look at it, he's moved from nine till now three, and in chapter two, chapter fourteen, he moves into two, and by the end he's at one. So you have a digression the whole way of moving to the problem. The problem is ultimately, I think, the pneumatica. Okay, that's the problem. What I would call tongue speaking that is not part of the charismata. With me. Because there is tongue speaking in the Christmas interpretation, but if it's a different character. Because the tongue speaking they're bringing in is not inspired by the Spirit. The tongue speaking of the charismata is inspired by the Spirit and then can be controlled by reasonable actions. The pneumatica can't be controlled. And that's why he basically says, shut up. Okay? Now, if you look at prophecies in this passage, he says prophecies will be done away. Knowledge will be done away. When the perfect comes, and that which is in part will be done away. If you'll notice here then, I, I skipped something, that prophecy and knowledge, the two things besides this tongues he's talking about, prophecy and knowledge will actually have a passive action against it. Same exact Greek word. Now what you'll find in translations today is that they'll translate all three of these statements with a different word. And it takes away the force. Because you don't know up front that one, you know, will cease or ceases here. Uh, you know, they'll vanish and they'll, you know, each, you use three separate English words to, to express the same exact Greek statement. Okay? It's the same Greek word all three times. And that's important. Because something has to come against prophecy for them, to, for them to stop. Something has to stop them. Something has to stop knowledge. And when the perfect comes, those two things here that are in part, Paul says these, and when you read in the passage, it says knowledge is in part, prophecies are in part. When the perfect comes, that is that which is not in part, means complete, not partial, but complete. It's actually the fulfillment of the two words. The incomplete, they will stop. Something's going to stop them. Whereas with the complete comes, then that which is incomplete will stop. Does that make sense? So if you have something that's complete, you don't need the incomplete. If you have something that's full, you don't need that thing which is somewhat partly full. So something's going to happen that's going to make revelation regarding prophecy and knowledge no longer needed. What was going on in the church? You had, in a church meeting like this, 
somebody would stand up and give knowledge. But that knowledge is not full knowledge, it's incomplete knowledge, it's partial knowledge. It's only a, a, a portion of an understanding. Somebody's going to get up and prophesy, and that prophecy will be a partial understanding of God's revelation, but not complete. It was as a stopgap measure for the time. So the Spirit was working in the church to provide individual kinds of understanding and, and prophecy for people to live by and, and follow and, and know truth. Tongues, interestingly enough, uses a particular uh, construction here that simply says this. I have 10 minutes left. Tongues in and of themselves will just simply stop. They don't need anything to make them complete. Now, he says that the body of Christ, you have individual members. We know partially. We prophesy partially. When the perfect comes, what is in part, that is prophecy and knowledge, will be done away. Tongues don't need anything to make them stop. They just stop for a reason, I think, but I won't go into that today. Some people say this is completion of the New Testament uh, because you have the Greek, you know, it's a neuter. Bible is neuter, except that Bible is never mentioned in the passage. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't refer to a neuter noun Bible because Bible is not mentioned, the Biblion. It's not there. Second coming is sometimes used. Coming refers to Christ's coming, and the text speaks of a perfect thing, and my goodness, Christ is perfect, right? Yeah, but it's a perfect thing, not a perfect person. Christ is not discussed in 1 Corinthians 13 any more than the Bible is. Some people say it's referring to the body of Christ because the body is a neuter, perfect's a neuter. So when the body, that is the body, is complete, then that which is incomplete is no longer needed. But even that is limitedly discussed in the passage and certainly not the word body. You look for context. What's in the context? Not what theological theme you want to talk about, but what's in the context? Well, face-to-face -face sounds like it. My goodness, we're all going to, when we die or when we're raptured, we all get a chance to look at Jesus in the face and say, Hi, buddy. Right, I'm joking. Now, Face-to-face -face might fit with a personal encounter. That makes sense. I do understand that. Look at the uh, view here. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I came a man, I put away childish thing. Nothing wrong with being a child, right? Unless you're an adult. Of course, that doesn't apply anymore, does it? You have to think on that. When one grows up, after receiving adequate nourishment, knowledge, and wisdom, the things of a child are no longer needed. The church needed grounding in what? Truth and direction. But once this was accomplished, there was no more need for gifts that served to establish revelation that would guide the church. What is the point of discussion through this whole passage, the question of revelation of God, that prophecy provided and knowledge provided and even, some thought, tongues provided? Here's a mirror, by the way, at, found at Corinth. Not real, you know, when it was even polished up nice, uh, you had a distorted image that you looked into. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, when? Face to face, now I know partly, but then I'll know fully. See, the word teleon, complete. 
until clarity is established by the completion of revelation for the building up of the body the church sees in an ambiguous manner. I'm not arguing this is a reference to Bible. What I'm arguing is a reference to Revelation. The whole discussion of the passage is Revelation. And so why should I go to some other topic that fits theologically with what I think we ought to put in there? We're going to do exegesis here, not eisegesis. So Paul's saying we have limited revelation now. But when it's no longer limited and it's complete, then that which is incomplete is of no more need. I think that's clearly what's in the passage. Now, by the way, I ran out this face-to-face thing all the way through every example I could find. I mean, this is a full completion. Face-to-face, clarity of understanding. Face-to-face, a man speaks to his friend. That is straightforward. Face-to-face, even plainly and not in dark sayings like in prophecies of knowledge. Face-to-face, personal rather than indirectly. Face-to-face, direct rather than indirect and obscure. Obscure. By the way, that sounds a lot like Paul was going to Deuteronomy for his thinking here because of the issue of the revelation of God and Moses and everything. I think Paul may have even had this verse in mind. Face-to-face, not obscure. Face-to-face, not through general revelation or obscure ways. Face-to-face and eye-to-eye, that is clarity and completely. 1 Corinthians, the fact is, when I know completely, I'm not... I have no obscurity. And then you find examples also in the New Testament. Every example I looked at seemed to say this, that to see face to face is the time that when you look, it is without obscurity and lack of clarity. And what happens when the full revelation of God comes in, then those things that are incomplete and less clear are no longer present. And I think that's the point. I think the perfect is, in fact, not the coming of Christ not some of these other things, but in fact, when the completion of Revelation took place. I have, what, five minutes left? Okay. What shall I do for next? Yeah, I guess I'll leave room for questions. Although, let me do this one. Was Abraham looking for a real city? By the way, I worked through this, and I used to think differently, but I'm going to just give you the answer since I don't have time to develop it. Final spot. Uh, I think that when it says that Abraham was looking for a city, it relates to this. Notice at the very beginning, he dwelt in tents, right? He was a nomad. He waited for the city which had foundations whose builder maker is God. The city is not the land of Israel. He moved in a nomadic life, wandering and non-permanent, when you move to the city, you move from nomadic wandering to permanence and security. I think the whole concept of city here then probably is probably he went to the place upon which the city of Jerusalem was built, you know, Mount Moriah, and there was no city there at that time. He's still a nomad wandering around. But he was looking for a city in which he would have security and safety to come. And I really think that ultimately becomes anticipatorily with the future heavenly city of Jerusalem. I think this is what this passage is discussing. That is the city that we find in the Revelation that comes down from God. Right? You've seen that? Four square, all that. A city come down from heaven from God. A city built by God, Abraham says, and he finds it with the heavenly Jerusalem to come. 
And I think that's what the passage is discussing. Okay, questions? Yes, Paul. Anybody hasn't asked one before they wants one? By the way, I got a late start because of Robbie. Right? That's right. Yes. And it's a good question. I need a good question. I hope I have a good no, answer. No. <laughs> this, yeah, this should be, I would think, simple. In uh, your First Corinthians fourteen thirty-seven, when you're either a prophet or a tongue speaker, do you see prophet obviously as someone who's giving truth, but also as revelation? I think it's revelation at this point. Revelation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, you have prophets giving revelation in the Old Testament. I don't take it as Wayne Grudem does, who sees this basically as giving good advice that can be wrong or right. I think the point of it is that until the, you, you had, remember when we're talking about the 50s, <laughs> uh, you have most of the New Testament still not even written. And I think the point of it is that the revelation of God was becoming more. Remember, Paul got a revelation of the mystery, and that before that time, people wouldn't have had that information. I think some of this information gradually came in, came in until finally God has gotten it all done and then the other is simply unneeded anymore. That's what I would understand. This would be true revelation. True, true revelation. Oh, yes. I don't, again, I don't think you have... If you have a false one in the Old Testament, you get, you get stoned. In the New Testament, you get silenced. <laughs> yeah, so, so what you're saying basically is if oh, Wayne Grudem were living under the law, he would be stoned for writing his book. Wayne Grudem's a friend of mine, and I want to be careful in case we're going to talk, I love Wayne Grudem. We're going to he's talk, a good man. He's going to run some great stuff in some other areas. But he's I'm wrong just, here. But he's wrong Definitely here, and wrong. I'm just saying that on the basis of what he says under the law, he would be stoned. He's a false so. prophet. Yes. Well, if he presented himself as a prophet, yes, he would be. That is if his prophecy doesn't come true. Yes, something else? In... Um, this isn't really a question. It's a, a kind of comment on Matthew 24 and First Thessalonians. And your chart of the differences between the two passages, there's something that's always caught my eye that I didn't see in your chart, and that is oh. that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout okay. for his saints. But in Matthew 24, he sends angels ahead to gather the elect. Yeah. So that's, a, that's a significant to me. Yeah, you don't really have the Lord actually gathering. It does mention the fact that the sign of the Son of Man comes in the clouds, and, but it's not that personal level. But that's why I said Matthew 24 is, is the big picture of things, and 1 Thessalonians is a personal kind of relationship. Yeah, yeah. somewhere back here. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm very interested in... I'm sorry. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, do you have your the? I would like to see your work on on the First Corinthians twelve and Hebrews six in particular. Do you have that uh, in, a, in a paper form or that's next year? That's next year. How do we keep in touch so we can? Okay, I would I would like to see that in. Um, I, I've in, got in, work on this. Yes, I do. Because because not the, the slides are good, but I, I want I want to get I want to see the, the process a little bit more if you have that available. I have some things that are available. Sure. All right, I've got one, one comment on his question on Matthew 24. Well, we have to make a distinction here because we've gone back and forth here. Is the argument that wants to put the rapture into Matthew 24 does not do so until after verse 36. Okay? 
their argument, at least the one that's most clearly articulated by John Hart out of Moody, is that up through 35, up to about verse 31, we would not disagree with a thing that he says. But after that is when he thinks it shifts and stops talking about the second coming and starts talking about the rapture. So we have to be be distinct there. Okay, just a matter of cl- clarity. A couple questions back here. Yeah. In Matthew 24, uh, you briefly touched on it, but you have uh, two sleeping in one bed, yeah. two at the, at the mill, two in the field. Uh, that This is the pushback I get on it. It seems like it's business as usual, life as normal. Those are normal daily activities. But then, but then the comment is, uh, well, how, how can this be happening? How can these normal activities be happening at the end of the tribulation when we, the world should be suffering from the wrath of God? So is there a way to reconcile those two? Well, obviously it depends on how bad things have gotten at that juncture. I'd have to look at that carefully to be sure where we are in the argument. Uh, obviously, if everything was destroyed, then you would not. But even then, people probably sleep. Uh, so... Um, but the key on that is, as you know, that he ties that taking away to the occasion of, of, of Noah and the, and the ark. And the people who were taken away is those people who were taken away into judgment, uh, not those people that were saved on the ark. And so it seems to be that's the parallel that's being drawn with the, uh, you know, in that passage. Well, in the uh, taking away, um, do you view that as a a fulfillment possibly of the wheat and the tares where the tares are gathered up and tossed into the fire and then the, the yeah, wheat and then go you into have the people kingdom. left hmm? which is what happens by the way after the tribulation not everybody's destroyed the tribulation people actually after all the judgment of God you have a group of people who go into the millennium right and who are ultimately they stay, they don't receive resurrection bodies at that juncture. There is a, another, as you know, another resurrection that takes place later from people, but they move into a millennial period. So I, I, some are destroyed and some are left. I think it's, yes, I think that's a good analogy. Okay, there, another point there is, that I think is, is important, I'm right in the middle of working through this right now, is that's connected to the thief metaphor, and a lot of people say, see, if, you know, you, you, you know that the, the, uh, uh, at the rapture, it's like a like a thief, and then but the second coming, you have all these signs. But the earth dwellers have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They're denying all of that. So, you, first of all, you're talking about these earth dwellers. Secondly, uh, in Revelation sixteen fifteen, which is just before the second coming, you have the statement, "Behold, I'm coming like a thief." This is, I think, a, Robert Thomas thinks it's a it goes back and it's addressed to the first century readers, but I don't. Um, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. See, he's talking about the second coming. I'm coming like a thief. I agree with that, yeah. yeah. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. He's talking to tribulation saints to stay awake and don't be surprised. And you would think that, well, wait a minute, if they can count... They could figure out that the second coming is just right around the corner. But nevertheless, you still have this warning to stay awake and don't be surprised by the thief. Right. I think it's fine. Yeah. Right. One more back here, and I guess we'll break it off. 
Returning back to to First Corinthians fourteen in, in verse thirty seven, you've been making this correlation between pneumatikos and, and speaking in tongues, but then we get to verse thirty nine. He says, uh, "Desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues." Yeah. So why is there? N- if you were to read the article that Robbie was referring to, and I'm open to give people that article, but I actually deal with that because I Paul, Paul had a difficult problem. Uh, we're talking about in the mid fifties. He's in a pagan community, heavily energized with mysticism and and religions that were into experience and of all sorts, including speaking in tongues and prophecy and interpretation. Those things were going on outside the church, okay? And so now he's got a problem because inside the church there is a legitimate charisma of speaking in tongues and of interpretation of tongues. They had to be controlled in number, the whole thing's laid out in detail on how to do it right, right? The pagans had no, had no uh, turnoff. They didn't know how to, they, the whole idea of saying, I, I just can't help myself kind of view. See? So Paul says, no, if you, you, if you can't help yourself, shut up. See, because he gave legitimate, um, legitimate uh, rules for the exercise of the legitimate gifts, but the illegitimate exercise couldn't function within the rules by its nature. That's the pagan religion. You'd have to read on to this. So I think what he's trying to do is balance these questions. He started off with them asking a question about the pneumaticone. He ends up his discussion that seems like a final statement about the pneumaticone problem. But as a side note at the end, I think he then says, however, I don't want to make this an absolute forbidding of any tongue speaking because if in fact they follow the practices that he gives in 14 it would be legitimate but it has very limited function but it is legitimate nonetheless so he's trying to balance these claims off against each other okay we've gone about uh, seven minutes too long so we will we will we'll give a little more time. I encourage you, if you don't have Wayne's book on hermeneutics, do that. We'll come back about, we'll start up at 1020. Wait a minute. We'll start off at 1020 and, or a little bit before, try to get back here because there's a couple of things we need to do that will take up a little bit of time. So we might go a little bit past 1130 when uh, Dave Farnell finishes section. So he does that. So we just have to wrap up a couple of details.